Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 120 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Just around the corner here, January 31st, the first ever virtual Mandolins of Beer hangout for all my patrons. All you have to do to be part of it is just go over to Patreon and support the podcast. You can do it for as little as $1 a month. I want to thank Edward and Jed this week. Uh, Jed signed up, and I believe Edward um, upped his from one tier to another. So thank you so much for doing that. I really, really do appreciate it. It keeps everything running here. Another way to help out is just sharing the love on the social media. Share this with any mandolin lovers you got out there who, who might want to hear some interviews with some of the best in the business. And uh, speaking of the best in the business... John Reichman's new old-time course over at Peghead Nation is just incredible. Um, again, not everybody's into old-time, but Peghead Nation's got a great lineup of mandolin instructors with uh, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. Everything from beginner mandolin to theory. There's jazz. There's Irish. There's mandolin or <laughs> mandolin style, Monroe style mandolin. So check them out at PegheadNation.com. The best part is if you join any of the video courses now, you get your first month for free. If you go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout, you get the first month free. Can't go wrong there, so check it out. Thank you to Peghead Nation. Thank you to Northfield Instruments. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Actually, I'm going to have a little chat here with Adrian coming up again soon to see what they've been up to. Might also have a little something-something coming from Northfield as well. I'll talk about that. Follow me on social media, the Instagrams and the Facebook, Mandolins and Beer. Also, obviously, Northfield's uh, Instagram is, is insanely good, as is Peghead Nations, so be sure to check that out as well. Straight Up Strings! Also, a sponsor this week is Straight Up Strings, the secret to a balanced mandolin. As I said before, I can't tell you about the science behind this, but there is a ton of science behind it. And even more importantly, killer players like C.J. Lewandowski and Tristan Scroggins play these mandolin strings. So uh, go to straightupstrings.com and check this deal out. Again, price per set, $8.95. You buy a six-pack, you save $9.75. That's a free pack of strings. Uh, and again, go to the website, check it out, and also sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter is great. It's filled with all sorts of uh, tips and tricks and even some questions and answers from some of the pros out there playing them. Straightupstrings.com. And Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas by Tom Ellis. Uh, thank you to, to Ellis Mandolins and team out there in Austin, Texas. Hoping to get back out there here uh, before the end of the year. So... Austin, stay tuned. All right, let's get into it with Martin. Martin from We Banjo 3. If you're not familiar with them, uh, just an absolutely incredible band with all sorts of influences from Ireland. Two sets of brothers. They're incredible. They're coming to a town near you. Go to WeBanjo3.com. Martin's also got a Facebook and an Instagram. You can follow him on. All those links are in the description. They're at mandolinsandbeer.com. And uh, let's get into the interview with Martin. It's a great chat. Cheers, everybody. Lay down your weapons and lay down with me 
We will stare at the stars and think what life could be. Did you drink beer? I love beer. Oh, I'm perfect. Currently sitting drinking a very early beer in oh, Minneapolis. Good beer. for you. Your podcast is, is mandolins and beer. I'm drinking a, a, a local called S6, like a double a double IPA, but not at high ABV, like a suitable afternoon beer, like 6% ABV. There we go. IPA, which, that's awesome. Yeah, you like beer too, uh, oh, by, yeah. by the basis of your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. So the voice you're hearing right now is Martin Howley. Martin from We Banjo 3. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a million for having me on, Dan. Oh, Thanks man. Your podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for doing it. I'm, I'm a big fan. I was, I was just telling you those We Banjo 3 albums are just so they're like explosive and, and they capture a good range of dynamics. I mean, you have a good mix of, you know, like the, the pretty songs and but man, when they crank up, you know, it's one of those via, you got to have your cruise control on because you could easily find yourself going <laughs> way over the speed limit <laughs> listening to I your love albums. That. Love that. But um, we're as we're talking now, you're actually in Minneapolis, and and I didn't know this was part of of your background. But um, what are you doing in Minneapolis right now? This is an amazing story. I'm enjoying the cold weather here. Um, <laughs> I between between shows uh, with We Banjo Three, I moonlight um, in a Broadway show, a Broadway touring show, um, sort of an orthodox story. Um, it's called Come From Away. It's a show about the days after nine eleven. Uh, when U.S. airspace was closed, they, a little town in Newfoundland, Canada, on the edge of the Canadian Maritimes, uh, where they traditionally, transatlantically, planes would have had to land there in Gander, Newfoundland, um, to refuel. But that airport then was defunct with modern planes, been able to do the entire journey. And when they closed the airspace in uh, the days after 9-11, they had to ground all these planes that were coming over from Europe um, and further afield. So essentially, this little town of 6,000 people all of a sudden was taken in something like six or 7,000 strays. And for five days, the airspace was closed. So they were all housed in schools and people's houses. And I mean, just the oddest story, but a great story of humanity and kindness. Um, and obviously, Newfoundland as a place um, was um, very uh, synonymous with the Irish culture because there's a, a huge amount of Irish immigrants in Newfoundland, so there's a very strong connection musically um, between Celtic Irish music and that of the music of Newfoundland. So there's a lot of shared heritage. And in a rather unorthodox turn of events, um, my wife, uh, who's a brilliant violinist, Kiana, um, she uh, was out playing with this Broadway show, which is, you know, um, a whole industry that I was rather unaware of. And um, one of their guitarists left in the Broadway show and they um, said, would you be interested in playing? Um, it's a it's a book in, in Broadway terminology. You know, a book is basically you sit down and you play. There's a conductor on a little video screen. So I'm on stage um, dressed up like a Newfoundlander and I have a little video screen and my uh, my book in front of me and I'm playing mandolin, octave mandolin, bazooki, um, uh, standard guitar and dadgad guitar. And um, it's cool because I sit beside my wife and I play this show. And uh, it's really enjoyable. So I'm currently in Minneapolis doing that. And then I fly out to do recording with We Banjo 3 next week. Oh, that's exciting, man. And you guys put out you guys put out a, a, a album called Winter Wonderful just last year in 2021. And then yeah. the last one since then was Haven, which is so good. Yeah, so yeah. Good. Winter Wonderful was a cool project. It was, you know, just we'd never done a Christmas album. And 
last year, I mean, the last 18 months has been very strange for anyone involved in music, I'm sure. I mean, it's been, let's actually preface that by saying it's been strange for everyone, <laughs> right, um, yeah. but particularly strange for music and in uncertain times. So we tried to pivot and do new things. And I guess winter 2020, when things were pretty bleak, we were trying to think of things we could do that were hopeful. And we did a live stream um, online and we had a lot of friends, um, Bella and Abigail played on it. Um, and we had a bunch of Irish and Scottish bands, Scary Vore, I'm trying to think who else played in it. Maybe Sierra Hall played on it. Um, yeah, so there was a bunch of people who played on this Winter Wonderful in 2020, a live stream. And there's a lot of um, positive feedback. And we thought, Winter Wonderful, that's kind of a nice idea. Let's make um, a Christmas album in 21. So um, we got to it. It was a very strange thing to, in July, be sitting down to <laughs> record Christmas music. Yeah. <laughs> But it was a lot of fun because we got to like we got to look at Christmas music that was you know I suppose stuff that we'd love like um my very favorite song on the album is um Christmas in Prison by the great John Prine. Christmas in prison and the food was real good We had turkey and pistols carved out of wood And I dream of her always even when I mean, We've been fans of John for the longest time And John, in a strange story of transatlanticism we, Dave, my brother and I, who are, he's in Weavangel 3 as well um, The two of us grew up in uh, Galway on the west coast of Ireland Like a real small you know, sparsely populated, but very beautiful area. Um, and we we grew up near a fishing village called Kinvara. And for some reason or other, um, Kinvara has always attracted the artistic folk um, from further afield. And John Prime, who was a longtime resident of Nashville, he, he passed last year, unfortunately. But um, John was spent about six months of the year living every year in, in Kinvara. He found it as a very big font of creativity. So. Um, John used to be in the local pub and we didn't know, you know, that he was as famous as he was. He'd just be <laughs> in the local pub playing songs with people. So it was that deep connection. So it was really cool to go full circle and go recording uh, Christmas in Prison by John Prine. That felt, that felt special. <laughs> So you grew up in Ireland, but you're saying you you um you were a bit of an anomaly. You, your family was anyway, because your father was also a musician, but he was into the American folk scene. So you had more than just traditional Irish music and things like that growing up around your house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're real lucky. My my mom and dad are both into music. Dad is dad played music and, and still plays music um, semi professionally. And he uh, was big into, yeah, country music and bluegrass music and Americana. And, you know, we'd have had a lot of those records on growing up. We didn't know any different, you know, just that's the music that's in your house. <laughs> right. So we had a lot of our folk heroes from Ireland, like the likes of Paul Brady and Christy Moore, but also, you know, things from further afield, Earl Scruggs, Bella Fleck, um, and then like some of the great country heroes like Waylon and... Um, I'm trying to think who else we would have had on in the in the house. A lot of Willie um, and um, uh, Hal Ketchum, like all the run the gamut of 
country music and folk over in the US. Um, it was great, you know, we grew up with all of that and those records on. So that gave me an early interest in banjo music. And I remember, it's a funny thing, you know, so I play, I grew up playing four string Irish tenor banjo. I was going to ask mandolin. about that actually. Yeah, yeah. So Irish music was largely and still is a dance music, you know, a music that was very much peasant based and was based in, I suppose, providing rhythm for dancing, you know, it was very social. And it's a, a funny part of colonialism is that like Ireland was subjugated by the British for many years. And in that they tried to dis extinguish our culture and the culture only grew stronger, which you see in a lot of oppressed societies. And so and maybe there's a strange connection, the banjo and the kinship of, you know, that coming from Africa and being part of a, a subjugated culture too. There's maybe a strange kinship in that. And but the the music itself is very much one of organic um, and um, simple means, you know. And so I grew up playing banjo and mandolin in a in a very like social way. You know, we had sessions which are like large informal gatherings where everyone has a sort of shared canon of tunes and you sit down and play them. Um, and that's basically where I came to music from was the playing banjo and mandolin in those settings. And um, it's funny because the Irish tenor banjo is tuned in fifths, just like the mandolin, just a big, bigger stretch, but it's GDAE, an octave down, um, tuned like fiddle tuning. And um, so there's quite a good bit of similarity between the techniques you use on mandolin and tenor banjo. It's an easy crossover for a lot of mandolinists. Um, the picking is a little bit different in that you're using typically using a lot more flexible of a pick, you know, like a 60 millimeter nylon pick versus, you know, something like a Wigan or a blue chip on mandolin in bluegrass, you know, this, obviously a million different things you could do on mandolin too, but just in those settings. And um, yeah, so grew up playing banjo on mandolin. And that was one of the big crossovers for me was like, I remember listening to Bella Fleck. And at the time I didn't know that there was a difference between five string banjo and four string banjo. So I heard his like forward rolls and was really like just captivated by how it drove the rhythm on. Um, and so I just, I had amazing slow downer on my uh, um, computer, my home computer at the time. And I just slowed down his rolls and tried to learn how to do them on banjo. Um, and it wasn't until years later that when I came to the US or started watching videos, I don't know what, what exactly prompted, but I realized that Oh, hold up. They've got three picks. That's why they're able to do it so fast. I just <laughs> thought that I, I was inherently less talented and that was why I couldn't um, play as fast as they could. But it turned out that um, I am also less talented, but I, but I also had the, the lack of the, the three picks. Um, but yeah, that's, that's mandolin and banjo in, in Ireland. And I grew up playing mostly Irish tunes, um, but then always, always had that ear to the folk stuff, you know, playing licks in my dad's songs. And then, you know, learning fiddle tunes, bluegrass fiddle tunes, and learning the chording techniques and some of the, you know, Irish music, typically the um, ornamentation and variation is very much within the melodic sequence rather than taking solos. It's it, much more a culture of like interpretation of a tune collectively rather than in the individual sense. So there's that big distinct distinction in, in the cultures, but uh, they're very, I would say harmonious, you know, it's the same techniques largely, but just done it spun a different way. It's almost like old time music a little bit. I think, yeah. you know, when I, I got to go to Ireland for a month in 2019 
And going to sessions and getting to participate in sessions was really, really amazing. And like right off the bat, the first thing I noticed that was really, really cool is those sessions, while they might take place on a stage in some places, you aren't set up like on a stage. You're set up looking at each other. And it's really just like this propulsive feeding of energy through each other. It, it was it was remarkable. That's a really good description of it. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And and there's so much common heritage because I think, you know, ethnomusicologists would point out that the Irish immigrants that came to the foothills of Appalachia and to the, you know, the, the mountains, um, you know, it was like a lot of Irish and Scots that settled down there and they became part of the old time fiddle tradition that then morphed into maybe later, um, you know, bluegrass. I, I think a, a lot of people would see that bluegrass came from those those roots. So there's that deep shared musical heritage. And even what you find is that there's like, there's bluegrass tunes that are derivatives of Irish tunes. You know, they sound like they have the same musical root structure as an Irish tune. And I, I remember that being like, phenomenally interesting the for like the first time i visited nashville i was maybe like 18 or 19 and i was meeting all these bluegrass musicians um and playing um bluegrass music which i was completely out of my depth on <laughs> but i noticed that there was like a lot of tunes that were you know okay this this fiddle tune is just like this this tune at home in ireland and that was that was pretty nice it gave me a soft landing in ways <laughs> mm-hmm. it's also kind of nice too having that like the the thing I really like about old time and how I think maybe it relates a little bit over to bluegrass is, you know, you're learning all these older Irish tunes and you're really kind of like embellishing on a mel- melody for your quote unquote break. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of the song never really loses the focus of the melody. Right. You know, it always maintains it where in bluegrass, that's one of the things sometimes that you can tell the difference between a really good player and a player who's maybe just figuring stuff out is they hang on to that melody and do embellishments, you know, so you kind of always know what songs are going on, even during a solo, even if they're getting kind of crazy because they kept aspects of that music in there. So you had a little bit of a head start sort of some of that bluegrass stuff to keep, you know, keeping that melody in your head. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely very interrelated. And I feel like I just, I mean, I, I enjoy bluegrass music so much now in the same way that there's so much of it that has, the same feeling for me as as Irish music, and as you said, in really good bluegrass, like I was back listening to uh, a Tony Rice record there recently, and I was just noting that propulsion, that feeling, like when you have like, you know, the, people were talking recently about JD that you know when JD passed on that like he JD Crow's like propulsive ability, you know, the way that he basically underpinned the music, you know, when he wasn't taking a break. Um, you know, people like him or Tony Rice had this ability to like propel the music on. And I feel like that's very much like at the heart of Irish music is like propelling it on like that energy that's bubbling. And it's just, it's so exciting to listen to and be a part of because it's almost like the less you do, but in the right place, you know, you just, you're punching in that subdivision in a very unusual way that it's hard to pin down on, on a sheet, but there's some magic je ne sais quoi if you like to it there's like a there's some element of magic fairy dust in the way that you're feeling the subdivisions and i feel like that's the same thing across old time across that's honestly i feel like the more i've got involved in folk traditions of other cultures i see that same thing true that it's like it's very hard to pin down exactly what it is 
that's make you know i suppose in modern music terms we'd call it pocket or something but you know there's there's some magic to it that when you're deeply within a culture i still feel like a visitor to american bluegrass i i'm very much like appreciative of it and i love it but i also understand that like i'm coming from a different corner so i'm trying to listen and hear what people who are maybe native to it are doing um i just i love being on on a wavelength where i can hear some of that stuff and that's where i feel deeply connected when you were going to like sessions and first kind of learning maybe a little bit digging into this the the pocket thing and thing like that was it was it something like when you were working on songs would somebody sit down and be like hey you know what would add or a good way to approach this would be maybe do this or stop doing stop doing what you're doing here and then try to you know was that something that they shared when you went to sessions like that or was it something you just kind of heard and then had to figure out on your own that's a good question it's varied i feel that a lot of irish music for me was learned by osmosis it was just time spent in the tradition playing time hearing things and you know sometimes that paradox that you don't know what you don't know that mm-hmm. you know you're, you're not even aware right but i feel like you've gradually become aware of nuances and i feel like that was certainly true but also there was some formal pedagogy like i did go to music lessons with people i really admired and really like studied what they were doing um and they'd break down techniques that i you know i i couldn't access by just merely listening um but yeah the formalization of irish music pedagogy is not huge yet I mean, it's something that I'm very interested in is teaching. I, I feel very strongly that we should have, uh, you know, as as formalized a pedagogy as possible to give people the best blueprint for going forward, you know, um, and then obviously you're going to have all the subtle variations within that. But that, you know, just in terms of like, I think we could talk about it for days, but, you know, like picking technique, there's certain things that like immutable truths, if you like that, like if you are going to pick with these mechanics, they're going to be, Anatomically speaking, they're going to be the most reducing in stress, the, the most um, allowing of you to be able to express your musical ideas freely. And so I'm very interested in that. And I think that growing up, there was less of that in Irish music, but there's beginning to become a, a big focus on how what's the like best practice here, loosely speaking, best practice, that then can be a springboard for more. But I feel like a lot of Irish music still is osmosis. It's time spent just listening, and being patient and hearing, you know, because obviously it's non-uniform. It's, you know, the the rhythm patterns and the phrasing are very, you know, usually typical to a tune or typical to a stylistic area. And you just, you sort of pick them up over time and then you synthesize them yourself. But I'm sure it's probably the same for bluegrass that there's like, there's different schools of thought on how to approach things. But generally speaking, there's, there's sort of, um, I don't know, good things you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I saw a, um, a tenor banjo player when I was over there. And man, oh, man, that right hand. I'd love to ask you a little bit about that. So first off, how how long were you playing the tenor banjo before you like picked up a mandolin and started thinking like, oh, man, I want to play some more mandolin as well. That's, um, so I played flute growing up i i i I, my first instrument everyone in ireland starts off on a penny whistle it's a very musical culture so like this uh, in school you get a little tin whistle a penny whistle um and you learn tunes um and so i started off on that and then the natural bridge from that was flute because i love the sound of the flute still do um the irish wooden flute and i 
there's a luthier very nearby our house, maybe 20 minutes away, Tom Cusson uh, of Carrying Bandits, Tom and Finton, who make these amazing, amazing tenor bandits. I mean, they're some of the best in the world. And they were just down the road and my dad was friends with them. And my younger brother was gonna pick up tenor banjo, that instrument that he professed he wanted to play. Um, and so we went to, to visit, but my brother was too young to really kind of get into the banjo at the time. And so I just was playing on it and I was like, wow, this feels great. I love the sound of this. So I just started playing tenor banjo because of that and went to lessons and whatever else. And then the mandolin came shortly thereafter because naturally for songs, it felt like, oh, I would love to be able to play mandolin because I've heard it on all these American records and Irish folk records like the likes of Andy Irvine and Paul Brady, the huge mandolin influence for me. And I just loved the sound that double strung um, counter melody stuff that they would do. And I wanted to be part of it. So I we got a mandolin and growing up in the house and it was sort of like both Dave and I both played mandolin and banjo at the same time. We were kind of feeding off each other and then later got into guitars and et cetera, extended relations of the um, mandolin and banjo. Um, but yeah, the tenor banjo and mandolin felt very much akin because you'd approach differently picking wise, but the 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 fretting hand was exactly the same. I love the way you've kind of taken that tenor banjo picking though and kind of crossed it over into the mandolin. It's amazing. I love that the triplet feel that you you get. I, I believe it's a triplet, right? Am I am I it's a Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, just so we quick. Call them, <laughs> yeah, the 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 terminology that we use in Irish music is um so like again banjo and mandolin are sort of a recent addition historically speaking to Irish music. So you know, fiddle, accordion, uh, flute, these were the instruments that were around for a long time within Irish music, Elam pipes, the elbow pipes. Um, these were the instruments, the mainstays of Irish music. And then sort of within the folk boom, the, the banjo came along, like Bernie McKenna of the Dubliners was one of the first like Irish tenor banjo players that modernized it. Well, in the merry month of May, now from me home, I started, left the girls and two were nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear, kissed me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears to smother, enough to reap the corn and leaf, for I was born, got a stout black sword, the banished ghost and goblets, a brand new pair of brogues to rock, love of the bogs and frighten all the dogs on the rocky roads, a double of one, two, three, four, five. It was slightly before that, the Flanagan brothers in New York, these Irish immigrants that started to pick up instruments that were in uh, New York at the time, you know, swing culture was huge. And these tenor banjo players were in playing Dixieland and jazz and stuff. And then all of a sudden the Irish musicians were picking up these instruments. So the banjo became a relatively late addition to Irish music. And I think one of the things that they were attempting to do was, you know, Irish music on fiddle or on accordion or on flute or in the pipes, there's a lot of these like ornamentations called rolls or crans these, you know, kind of four notes and three note expressions that run slightly over in terms of tempo. And the banjo wasn't it, you wouldn't be able to do that on the banjo. So the the closest analogy to that was to do a triplet or a treble. And a treble is three notes um, in the space of two, but of the same variety. Like, so, you know, imagine like you're playing in D and you hear a, a, a treble is D, 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 you know, down, up, down within the music, but in the space of three over two. And a triplet is then 
where that's moving, a moving pattern like B, C sharp, D, or E, E, F, you know, something like that. So um, that's largely, those are the two big sub branches of that type of ornamentation. And that is very much like something that is hugely part of the rhythmic landscape of playing Irish banjo or Irish mandolin, like playing those like tight trebles. And, you know, if you're if you're playing a tune at 120 BPM or 130 BPM, something up there, um, and you put those in, they're they're going to sound like pretty pretty fast, and I think that's like <laughs> yeah. iconic. To that's iconic in in Irish music, and certainly when like the very first time I went to Nashville, I was filling in for a friend of mine, and um I like I knew nothing about like professional music at that point, but I I got to play in the Grand Ole Opry with like Ricky Skaggs and wow. Aubrey Haney and. Brian Sutton and Jeff Taylor, like all these amazing bluegrass musicians. Was that your first? Was that your first gig in Nashville? That was my first gig in Nashville. Yeah, the Opry. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, I know. It's like, that is amazing. It's a long way down from there. Yeah, standing on stage with Ricky Skaggs, and he goes, "Play it, son," and you just take off on a solo, and you're like, "Oh my god!" I look back years later, and I'm like, "Well, that was a hype." <laughs> what song, um, What song did you play? We played a bunch of Irish music that was. Um, the album i was out playing with a, a group uh, of musicians who they're much older than me uh, the brock mcguire band who were great and they had just done a music project exploring the shared heritages of you know irish music and bluegrass music um from very much from the lens of like that 1920s perspective of like the likes of john kimmel and the flanagan brothers these people who were like virtuoso irish musicians who also experimented in, in bluegrass and American culture in New York in a kind of a melting pot environment. And, you know, so we play things like Chink Up and Hunting and um, Waiting for the Federals and like. that had like that were in the bluegrass canon or in the um in the old time tradition but also the coal miner freeze bridges those kind of things um so we you know they had arranged these sets and i was basically coming in as a fill-in banjo player and um it was a pretty cool gig you know it was nice to stand up there and like but the thing that was funny was you know you've like and late now years later brian Sutton has become a good friend but like, you know, you like of Brian, who I still just think is revelatory as a musician. He's just, he's evergreen with these musical ideas and just amazingly sensitive and brilliant, just technically brilliant. And when you have someone like that, like freaking out about your trebles and they're like, how are you doing those things? And you're like, well, these are just things I do. I don't know. We, we've always done them in Ireland. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, at the same time, I'm basically, my mind has just been blown wide open by the ability they all have for soloing and comping. It's just like such a huge world. You know, it's completely different to play on a record or play hear a record and play along with it to hear those kind of caliber players in real life and just hear the ideas that they're putting into tunes. You're like, oh my goodness. So there was an all automatically I started to have these musical friendships with all these bluegrass musicians. Um and you know, I was sharing some ideas about Irish music, which they were interested in, and they were sharing some bluegrass ideas. So it was a real um 
I don't know, a, a fertile time for me in terms of like creative ideas and um, growth musically. What's the um what's the thinking behind using you mentioned earlier the picks um using a thinner pick with the tenor banjo versus like a thicker pick with the mandolin do you do you switch off between the two and uh what's kind yeah. of what's kind of the thinking be- behind that So a couple of things I mean so also this the, I'll preface this conversation a point by saying that I I did engineering in college so I have a quite like a leaning towards technique and towards detail and measurement so if it, if i get too nerdy you just cut me off i love the okay. nerdy stuff buddy <laughs> this is the right place yeah. to do it <laughs> good good i think that like the thing that i think about is that like you know you have this stretched string over a certain tension length right that like on mandolin that's a much shorter scale so you have like you have a, a higher tension so the the string is bouncing or moving faster back into position so when you play like a treble or you play something like, you know, like a fast run of notes on the mandolin, the string is moving less overall in the, you know, in the, let's call it like the vertical horizontal, um, it's traveling less vertically, um, you know, in, in, in parallel with the pick, it's, it's moving less. And then it means that you can hit the string, the upstroke and the downstroke can come faster. And uh, whereas what I found on tenor banjo, is that 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 longer length the string is looser and is actually traveling more so when you go to hit the treble the string isn't in the place that it should be especially at faster tempos it's not in the place it should be for collecting those note two and note three so you just can't get that tight treble sound uh, with a heavy pick but with a lighter pick the pick is actually transferring some energy into kind of a whip momentum you know there's a sort of elasticity that it's 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 bouncing back against itself. So as you're as you're trebling, the pick is collecting some energy. There's some kind of conservation of energy in the pick and in the string that just means that there is a, a kind of a a tighter feel to it. Um, and then tonally, I feel like too, there's you know a brighter, thinner sound to playing with a like a much flexible, much more flexible pick than when you you know you get that lovely bell-like warm tone when you play with something heavier i feel like in irish music especially on banjo you really want that like tight bright sound um so those two reasons like kind of tonal and then technique wise there's just i mean not to say that you can't play trebles with a heavy pick on the banjo you can but it feels more physically limiting um and originally i would have started on very light picks because that was what you know my banjo heroes like jerry o'connor and enda scott they were all playing on like these light picks so i started playing on those and I'd be probably one of the only mandolinists in, in the Irish music world that play on heavy picks because I just I love the bluegrass sound that like Bush and Thiele and um, all these guys were you know Mike Marshall all these guys were producing this to- tone um, John Reichman. that tone um, and so it took me a long time to figure out how to blend the picking technique that i grew up with 
with more of that tone from the heavier pick on mandolin. What kind of pick do you use for the mandolin? Right now I'm using a, a variety of uh, Wiegands a lot of the time. I love Wiegands. Um, and then sometimes I'm using blue chips for stuff depending on. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, I'm always experimenting. I feel like it's constantly uh, a, a place in motion. Like I tried the new Casein picks um, and I loved them initially, but when they warmed up, I felt like they, I was losing some of that like tonal dexterity. So I'm still searching for that perfect Holy Grail pick. I'm sure like basically every mandolin player is, yeah. but I feel like Wigan is the closest thing for me. How about you? What do you use? Uh, you know, I'm the same way. Um, right now I am currently using a Wigan, but um, the last three days my wife has just walked by in the living room when she's like gotten home from work and just laughs because I literally have just a table full of picks in front of me. <laughs> of just everything i love it <laughs> you know I what I mean? it. it just never it never ends you know and um and i just buy i'm telling I'm, I'm like a lunatic like i'll try them all i don't care if they're 50 cents a pick or or 35 bucks a pick i'm i, I want to i'll check them out yeah I'm that's, always searching. that's exactly <laughs> that's the thing like trying to find that holy grail because i feel like it is also deeply personal like you know i've had these talks with other mandolinists and people just will love a certain pick and that's that's their pick. Even like the bevels on a pick or how much it's rounded versus how much it's pointed. Like that's also deeply personal because, you know, everyone's musical expression is going to be a little different. Like their personality is going to be a little different. And um, so, yeah, it's searching for that holy grail. But I do love the, I love the nerding out. Like, you know, when you go on um, like the Mandolin Cafe or, uh, you know, these websites and you kind of you get so much knowledge you know people will have tried all the different gauges of strings tried different brands of strings and you just get ideas all the time to go ah oh, there's something else to go and find and i think if nothing else if we never actually drive any improvement it's just some it's a lovely way to spend time being very much in tune with like optimizing your sound you know it's like a and i think it's a good yeah. way to dial in dial in a tune as well you know what i mean like i think it's cool to Especially, you know, if like I'm working on like transcribing a, a tune out, like I just worked on, um, is it Durang's Bowl, I think, off of, uh, uh, of, of Adam Steffi playing it. And so I just worked it out. Oh, and then, God, yeah. so then I just sat there and played through it with every one of these picks the A part, the B part, you know, it's <laughs> just like each were like going back and forth and trying to figure out, you know. But at the same time, you're, you're learning the song, your left hand's always working on it, and you're just, you're working your ear trying to get best, the best tone you can. So that's what I like about it, you know. There's worse, worse habits to have. <laughs> yeah, and it can't be overstated how important that is. I feel like, you know, as I teach students nowadays, um, I, I constantly talk about that, that like w what I find is so common is that we, we innately want the new, we seek out the new. So, you know, when, when, and I was the same when I was growing up, but that focus on learning new tunes, like in Irish music, there's like thousands of tunes in the repertoire. So it's very common you want to just voraciously learn tunes like you know you want to learn you know i would go to i'd go to these teaching festivals in the summers in in ireland um and sometimes i'd learn 14 or 16 tunes in, in four days um and you know which is great but then i look back and i'm like the things that actually drive most technical improvement from like my overall playing that i could transfer to anything then was like really sticking with the tune and getting to know it like like really, really trying to understand the phrasing, trying to understand what the possibilities were ornamentation-wise. Like I try and push things into new places, try new variations, move things on the neck, like try new picking patterns. 
like I would just spend so long on this one tune, like just working on it, working on it, working on it, working on it. And then what I found was from that, I got a lot of transferable skills, but I had to resist the natural urge, if you like, to constantly be trying new tunes because that focus on the one tune every now and again was the key to my like my improvement as a as a musician and i feel like you know you're just talking about it they're like playing the a part playing the b part you know that there's all this like subtle work where you're just maybe getting more efficient with your left hand where there's the placement's slightly nicer or that coordination is slightly tighter between left and right or there's a new phrasing idea that's coming in a new melodic idea that's coming in and like that just takes time. There's like a, a percolation process that I'm convinced of. Well, certainly in my musical world, there's definitely like, I, I just have to percolate on things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you also put that, that, that's the thing about getting a song in your head too. Like learning 14 or 16 songs um, in like four days is awesome. But then how many of those, you know, how, how much of that do you retain? You think if you don't sit down and just keep playing those 14 or 16 songs, you know, I mean, it's still, it's nice to learn them all. But, you know, it's even even some of the greats, like I went through a, you know, a rabbit hole when Tony Rice passed away a little, you know, a year ago where I would I got like all these like bootlegs of them recording, you know, playing, you know, the hotels and holiday inns and different things like that. And when you look at those set lists, they're pretty similar set lists like those guys, you know, they still knew hundreds of tunes. But there were ones that you I mean, these are the these are the ones that they hammered out and like. We absolutely crush these one hundred percent of the time, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I mean, I think it's it's true. You know, you're always as a touring musician with like a project of Revenge of Three. I was always worried about variety, but then you realize there's certain things that people really like certain pieces of music. One, and they kind of want the feeling of hearing those live, and two, the they're maybe the best representation of what you can do at times too. I feel like. You know that's really interesting. I've never heard all the bootlegs of Tony, and but I could I could imagine they're absolutely amazing. And I would also say that much like Irish music, I'm sure that even like even if they're playing a piece of music and they're playing it every night, it's changing night by night because there's you know so much innovation happening on an individual basis that like when you that there's also that contrast of being able to hear all their bits. I'm sure that's actually pretty revelatory and like. You sort of like deeply knowing something. That's very, very cool. I feel like those bootleg things are something I'm only dimly aware of. But I was recently trying to work on, uh, like you know, learning a Tony Rice solo and on mandolin, and I was completely stunned with how hard um, it was to move it. You know, from from guitar positioning to move it to mandolin. I was like, I was doing some acrobatics, um, <laughs> yeah. and and yeah, I mean, that playing is just. It's so sensationally good. And that's the, the virtuosic culture that's inherent within bluegrass nowadays is just, I mean, it's awe-inspiring. Like I was listening to that new, Bella's new Bluegrass Heart, um, and you know, the playing on it's just sensationally good. And like, there's so many great young players now, like um, Molly and Billy and Sierra and Billy Contreras, and like all those players that, were, that are on that new album and many more. Um, it's just there's so many insanely good and talented players that it's just it's a really good time to be alive in instrumental string music to just hear what people can do. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. It's amazing. And what I love about it is is just, you know, the way it's grown even just in the last 10 years and let and, and but yet you can go back and listen to Bill Monroe, like where it's it's still pretty young. 
music when you look at you know in the grand scheme of things you know compared to like Bach and Beethoven you know you can still go back and it's not that far removed so you can literally see how people have taken you know this version of you know like wheelhouse and now to hear you know Sierra Hall play it with somebody and you're like whoa <laughs> you know what's it going right, to sound right, like right. what what's somebody going to be doing with that in in 10 more years you know but then you can still go back and listen to Monroe play it you know and it's the fact that like i mean coming from irish music where like you know it's some of it's millennia old it's it's a real kick to like that you could meet people who have played with bill monroe you know they're still alive that's just you know wild um and i feel like you know that's such a cool thing but also the bravery that's inherent within bluegrass music because it's a very restless music and that like you see the you know the likes of chris Thiele or bella and the way they've taken off and gone in different directions and you know, having a really good jazz record or having a really good classical music. I mean, not not just like tokenistic either, like a really deep dive into like Pele's Bach Sonata stuff was just phenomenal. Like, I mean, it's 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 unbelievably good. And it's amazing to see how like restless they are. They're just like that creative expression and excellence that's pursued in bluegrass then can be just turned onto any other type of music. And I do feel like as a basis, it's a very you know, it's a very interesting, rich, varied place to be because you've got all these crossover possibilities, you know, and like, it's just wild to hear where all that has gone now, you know, like the different, I mean, also that like bluegrass music is just turning up in the most unconventional places and is, you know, just sounds right. You know, it's a very good mixing agent, I think. It works really well to, to in a fusion environment. And that's kind of where we're at with it. Like I would never think of We Banjo Three or describe us as a bluegrass band, but we are deeply interested in and reverential of the bluegrass canon. So we like, you know, we can kind of hang in a bluegrass way. And um, but there's a lot of what we do is it, just taking ideas from bluegrass and expressing them in a different way with kind of an Irish accent, if you will. Um, and I feel like that's a really exciting thing that like I, I feel very fortunate to be part of that there's there's that sort of ability to take ideas from music um, and and pay homage and respect to the music too. It's not like, you know, just any kind of throwing caution to the wind either, but but that there's there's a freedom in that. There's a there's a great a real rich musical pasture to kind of be on and hang in. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I love what you guys are doing. It's it's incredible. I'm so excited you said you were going into the studio next week. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear what the new album will sound like because one of the great things about your albums is you can kind of you can kind of hear different influences coming from all over but it's never it never feels like stolen or like oh I had to force this lick in here. I mean it how long does it take when you guys work on tunes as far as arrangements go because some of them sound pretty complex. You are the light that lets me grow. Man, that's this is a really good question. Oftentimes, it doesn't take long at all. No um, kidding. It kind of just comes together. Yeah, because like a lot of the basis for the band, you know, the two sets of brothers, 
and we've known each other for many, many years, and there's a lot of shared musical time. And so when someone is innovating on an idea or expressing a new musical idea in real time, there's a sort of a sympathetic ability on a, I, I've never really been able to pin it down verbally and talk about it, but the, you know, you can sort of build on each other's ideas as it's happening. Um, and so oftentimes in the studio, that's the best stuff that we capture is <clears throat> we'll track four of us in four different ISO boots and just play the track down in one go. Uh, <clears throat> and that's like, typically we don't play to a click and we don't build the tracks out. You know, it's very much like we'll just sit in, play, uh, maybe on the songs we'll play with the scratch track, but um, the, like the, yeah, the, the bones of it would be just like, we sit in and we play and there's musical ideas that happen. And then we go back and listen and we, you know, might play the tune down or the set down five or six times. And we're like, okay, that take four there, there was some really cool ideas happening. Let's like go back in, see that we can't like, kind of think about that or keep that in mind loosely and see if we can even get a more polished version of that. And sometimes it, it is just that first take. Um, but yeah, arrangement wise, you know, there's ideas that are going around all the time and everyone is coming to the table with different, you know, we went from the very first album we met had no original music and it was all reimaginations of old Irish music or old American music. There was sort of that arc within the band, I think, a growing confidence of our own compositional abilities, maybe, um, that we could, you know, start to really get into what we had been writing. And I think in this latest album, it'll mostly be original, but maybe there's some things that are just percolating around that have been sitting on a kind of a back burner for a little while now, ideas that we might, you know, throw into the mix. But generally, it's going to be pretty much, I mean, let's just sit in and play and see what happens. And that you know then we take a step back after a few days in the studio and go what worked there and what didn't but i think that organic nature is maybe my favorite part of what we do and i think it's probably what comes across in the record that it it feels fresh because it is fresh it's not like we we don't really you know we'll never sit down and notate out um an arrangement it's it, i don't think there's anything that we've ever done that for um so you know it's usually just like one of us will have a tune idea they'll play it for everyone else. Everyone else picks it up by ear and then the tune invariably changes because it's been picked up by ear and there's, you know, little tweaks that happen. And then over time, then other musical ideas start to pour in on top when you're like, you write like a little harmony line or a counterpoint line, you know, but it's all done on the fly. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask if you used a click or not, because you guys, I, I, I would have ventured to guess no, only because I feel like your your songs on the albums they sound tracked live like that it, it's they breathe you know what i mean and and i would have been surprised if you said yeah we sit down with a click for every single song because it just um it feels like like a live performance happening in front of you you know it's it's great man i love it that's hard to capture thanks I so think. much yeah i mean i it's a funny thing because like here with the broadway show i play with the tick for like some of the 
some of the numbers on stage, you know, we have uh, like moving things like a, a, a turntable that moves on stage. So everything needs to be locked that click, the lighting cues and everything else. So with that, then you end up playing with the click. And I actually, I enjoy playing with the click um, and, and feeling the beat. And I think it's like really nice to play metronomically and whatever else. But when we play as a band, I feel like sometimes we've tried playing with the clicks just because it would simplify greatly being able to drop in other things on top. And sometimes the click just takes the life out of, especially the melodic tunes. It, it can just, for us, that, that little BPM drift, as I like to call it, that like adds a sort of a sense of, um, I don't know, feel. You know, you can push little bits, run on a little bit. And like, I mean, I've talked to other musicians about this too, that like that that's sort of common in bluegrass music too, that like a lot of the bluegrass cats will, they might run a click at the top of a tune to get a BPM cue, and then they just run it um, without the click. And I feel like th that's the same thing you can hear coming across as a bit of a, a bit of push and pull happening. And and really good players, I feel like, can just can can sense the rhythm. They can you know they can know where it needs to be and and put it there. Obviously, like on stage, sometimes I listen back to our recordings from like on stage when we're all excited and heat <laughs> up on adrenaline. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I physically be able to play like that cold. I mean, there's times where like I've listened to like a, a recording. I'm like, God, that's at like 140 something BPM. I don't know that <laughs> I could actually play that now. Um, but then adrenaline's a wonderful thing. You know, you just get it going. And um, yeah, I was talking to um, some of the boys in Ricky Skaggs' Kentucky Thunder because we. Oh, that some of that music is ridiculously fast. I mean, oh, they get yeah. up, like 170, 180 BPM breaks that are just these. Like, I mean, I have no idea how they can be so accurate. Like the likes of Jake Workman and that. Like, they're like, oh my god, or Andy Leftwich. There's a, I mean, those those guys can really play too. But yeah, that that speed stuff is oh my goodness, yeah. And it's so clean. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's just yeah, it's so good. I I feel like. I like the protective element of Irish music where you're often playing with another person because like, I don't know if I was to play a solo at 180 BPM, I think I'd freak out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's great. What are, what are some things? I mean, because again, I, I, what I love about your, your mandolin playing is um, it's, it's so uniquely you sounding. And I think a lot of that is probably obviously from your background and, and, you know, uh, what are some of the things that you think you maybe took over to Irish music that maybe uh, I would I would guess most people who listen to this podcast or a good majority are bluegrass players. But like, what are some things that you would recommend maybe listening to or some different ways to approach the mandolin that maybe they've never really thought about or things that you found that really that that have crossed over from what you've played into some of this bluegrass stuff or sessions you've been in with with American style players like that? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's a yeah, that's a fertile ground. There's some like absolutely amazing virtuosic Irish music um, that's worth listening to just to get like musical ideas that I feel like do deeply transfer into bluegrass. Um, the I'm trying to think what's currently on rotation and what has historically been things that I've listened to and found to be really good. I think there's like a lot of beautiful arrangements in the likes of like the 70s stuff, like the likes of Planksty and the Bathy Band um, and the Dannon. Those were these seminal groups that were just like super virtuosic and interesting in different directions, some more folk and some more straight up Irish music. 
And then from that, then you have like all the sort of stuff that fell out of that or came out of that. Like one of my favorite fiddle players would be like, um, fiddle is a very fertile ground for mandolin for certain, you know, because when you listen to Irish fiddle music, you can really hear how the slightly more legato ability of mandolin versus tenor banjo, there's there's ideas you can really start to encapsulate well on, on mandolin. They will sound different, but they're, they're there. And people like Frankie Gavin and Carl Hayden on the kind of aggressive front end of like real, like just virtuosic blow your head off speed. And then someone like Martin Hayes I feel like for any genre of music or musician, I'd recommend Martin Hayes because he's just got this. I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure that I could do it justice by saying it with words. Soulfulness is the closest thing I could approximate it to, but yeah, he's he's great. Um, then in, in in banjo playing, which kind of maps really well to mandolin too, um, the likes of Jerry O'Connor. Jerry has a few solo albums. He's amazing. And he took a lot of influences from bluegrass. You'll hear him playing like lots of cross pick stuff um, and lots of kind of double stoppy type stuff that works very well. Let's talk a little about your gear real quick here. You um, you mentioned on this show you're playing uh, um, all sorts of different stringed instruments. What are your uh, your mandolin family instruments that you're playing currently? Yeah, yeah. So Collings have been uh, a very long time friends of ours. Um, Steve and all the boys down there are just super nice. And so I play I play Collings um, F uh, as my main mandolin. I love it. Um, it's just grown on me over the years, I feel like, as it's warmed up and bedded in. You know, it's just my favorite mandolin to play. So I'm playing that. Um, and then my octave mandolin is a Fletcher Brock. And Fletcher's, Fletcher's up in... Um, in Washington State, and he just builds amazing instruments. My God, that octave mandolin is like built on kind of an archtop body, um, maybe summer jazz type thing, and it's um, it's the same one that like Sergio Rose plays, um, but it has so much sustain that it's really really fun to play because it's just got like sustain for days, um, and you know you can just do different musical ideas on, on an instrument like that. And then the bazooki I'm playing on the show is uh, Joe Foley. He's a Dublin uh, luthier and just makes, I mean, to my mind, probably the very best bazookis in the world right now are, are, are Joe Foley. Um, he's just, he's got it figured out. They're just incredible instruments and super consistent. Like there's, I've never played a bad Foley. My brother has one of them too, and they're great. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm playing. Uh, 
you know, I'm always, I'm always like, you know, anytime that I'm on the road and I pass through a place with guitars or mandolins, I'm, I'm picking them up. It's kind of a compulsion, you know, I think <laughs> right. they, they call it mass mandolin acquisition syndrome. Yes. Yes, um, they do. <laughs> well, I've got two more questions for you here. And, um, and, yeah. the, and the first one is, 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 if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something, what is something that you would work on? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, currently what I'm working on right now is really boring, but it's scales. You know, I'm, I'm back, I'm back working on scales and trying to play through them in, in different ways and keep them inventive. Um, I'm, you know, there's certain keys that I feel like I'm kind of weak in like F sharp major and C sharp major. They're not things I would have played traditionally. And so I'm trying to work on, you know, being open up the fretboard and being able to express ideas in those keys. Um, so I've been working 10 minutes on this. If you were working on, let's say if you're working on that, do, do you, how do you, how do you run through them that, you know, as opposed to just going up the uh, scale and stuff like that, do you have like a, a way you, that you enjoy to do to kind of like finger buster them a little bit or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a couple of things I do. Um, start with just the scale and then do it in alternating fashion, you know, the step up, step down thing. And then move it to an arpeggio of like say the major triad and then the minor triad and then extensions like with the seven and the nine and then looking at it from like playing it out of different positions and then ultimately one of the things i find very fruitful is to like take a tune that like i know in another key and then just transpose it on the fly and try and like play it cleanly and then you know just have um yeah have it come alive in that way I, i'm trying to like build the vocabulary and then when i feel like i'm starting to get comfortable with that i have a little app called iReal pro that i really love um that you know i can put on basically a little comp uh it's kind of like a midi comp thing but i can put it on in, in a key and slow the bpm down and then start to speed it up and just see if i can start to express musical ideas um and start with like really simple straightforward things but yeah that's basically how i would build it out because i find it like if I just play the scale, um, I'd be pretty limited then in, in terms of then where I can go. But if I start building it out with arpeggios and the extensions and then ultimately with, with tunes, then I'm starting to increase my musical vocabulary. So that's what I've been working on recently is just trying to build that out because, you know, we just growing up in Irish music, we would have not. I'm, I'm always amazed by all the modern bluegrass players in the way like you all play without a capo because. I mean, if, if things got up beyond like D, G, A, C, F, you know, after those, I'd basically start capoing. So it was like, you know, I mean, E major, maybe I would play it without a capo, but like things like any of the flat keys, the, the weird sharps, I would just start playing with, you know, like an E flat major, I would just play with a capo because it was like, well, I, I mean, that's too tricky. Um, <laughs> All right, and, right. And, and honestly, that's coming from the tenor banjo that like some of that is just not actually reachable on tenor banjo. Like it's it's nigh on impossible to actually play cleanly and well with, you know, with the spacing that you have on tenor banjo. It's it's really hard to play well. So you, you do end up needing to capo for certain places. Like if you're playing F sharp major, or C sharp major or something, you know, it's like it's just really hard without the open strings. But then then like on mandolin, it's much easier because you do have that reach. And then, and then the final question, I know you were drinking a beer earlier here, but do you have a favorite beer? Do I have a favorite beer? I should say Guinness because I'm Irish. I think Guinness <laughs> has, like, 
as a mainstream beer, I don't know if your listeners have done this, but like when you go to Ireland, Guinness is sort of an institution and like there's certain pubs that you go into and like they're they're known as Guinness pubs, you know, they just serve Guinness and maybe a lager, but it's not like, you know, there isn't the craft scene there much as much. There is now in the major cities, but not not not, not the same level as here. But um they have uh they have a an, an amazing ability to like you you'll have one one keg that's slightly warmer than the other and you'll have them running on a tap into the same tap and that intermixing and then you have the two part pour and it's nitrogen and it, it is a sort of religious experience as a beer you know i feel like the same way going to like belgium and going to one of the local breweries and drinking really good belgian local like a double or a triple that's local is is a, a religious experience drinking guinness in a good rural irish pub with irish music on and a fire going and it's blowing a gale outside that is sort of like you know that is that's worth trying once i would say everyone should have that opportunity if they can if they can swing it and then right now my favorite beer here in the us my wife is from michigan a great beer scene and uh you know they have founders and uh bells and a bunch of other great breweries up there um um but um the hop slam is just out that's one of the seasonal double ipas up in michigan and uh i feel like it's a great beer it has a really interesting setup i mean it's not for the faint of heart i think it is a 10 percent <laughs> it's, it's, it's got some it's got some power behind it <laughs> it does have some power but i'm i'm like i i just bought a case of that here because you know it's a seasonal release and it feels like very much connected to michigan so i feel like i'm i'm excited to have a hop slam this evening but I won't. I won't drink a hop slam until I know that I have nothing else to do in the day because <laughs> that the hop slam might be the end of my day. Then you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's maybe I my, do know. my current favorite beer. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you do know. You I know. do. What's your favorite beer? What What are you What are you most excited about? You know, I am from Michigan originally, and my favorite beer, which is a seasonal release as well, is is Oberon by Bell's oh, yeah. Brewing. Uh, it's yeah. my and and that and it's multifold. I mean, now it's not so much as you know, living in Charleston where it's summer weather all the time but back when i lived in michigan it signified the beginning of spring in baseball and so to me like watching a detroit tiger game on tv while drinking an oberon that i just bought on release day it still reminds me of of those of that winter is over and spring is on the way so i still love it yeah man i can i can i can dig that (laughs) The Oberon was a thing like the Lake Oberons, you know, when I'd go to visit Canada's folks in Michigan having having an Oberon by the lake. That oh, was yeah. a very nice thing. Yeah, I can yeah. picture it, man. I love it. There's that's beautiful up there. So we got some kinship. We got some kinship. We I feel do. like Michigan, yeah, there's a connection. We gotta I gotta see you uh well we were supposed to meet in person for Delfast and then obviously that yeah that didn't happen. But you guys have I know you had to postpone some tour dates, but where can everybody find um, your stuff on the internet, tour dates and all that good stuff. Where's the best way for them to do it? Yeah. Um, webanjo3.com is probably the best place to um, find all of the related to Webanjo3s. Um, I'm terrible at my own <laughs> social media. I should have a smart <laughs> music thing, but I, I do actually have a page, but I don't think I'd put anything on it. But people can follow me there because maybe that'll be a good, on Instagram and Facebook, I'm Martin Holly Music and I should I should have an, a reason to start putting things up there. So I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Um, and then, yeah, we went to 3.com and we're on tour again, um, like starting in mid February and we'll be out, we're out for a bunch of dates and we're all over the U S geographically this year, you know, we'll be playing, um, a lot of bluegrass festivals too. Like we'll be 
old settlers in Texas, uh, we had Merle Fest, we had Romp. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a bunch of Gray Fox up in New York, maybe. There's a there's a bunch of things that will be um we'll be crossing paths with the the great and good of the bluegrass world. Um and so yeah, I think we'll be on webanjo3.com, we'll have a lot, a lot of the tour dates and we're on Facebook and Instagram and all that sort of stuff too. And um, we're working on a new record. We just brought out the Christmas album, but there's, I mean, there's a pretty deep back catalog that'll range from like maybe more Irish centric, our very first album, Roots of the Banjo Tree to like our modern stuff with Haven. There's five, five or six albums there. So there's some listening for folks to go digging into if they wish to. And I'm always happy to chat to you if people write me a DM on any of these social media things. It'll take me a little while to get back because I'm a bit of a, curmudgeon but i i do i do enjoy the all back and forth conversation so um yeah yeah i'm deeply deeply honored to be part of your podcast and i hope we had some interesting conversations about the irish element of what you know i think is deeply connected to all the stuff that a lot of you fine folks do and so if there's ever any questions on that for folks I'm be, be happy to talk more about it awesome thank you so much for doing this martin i really really appreciate it likewise i mean it's just an amazing thing to do and i'm, I'm a fan of the podcast so I was honored when you wrote to me and oh, um, thanks, man. I do hope we get to hang and, and pick at some stage, you know, hopefully, you know, as, as the veil of Corona lifts, we will, um, we will get by Omicron and we will hopefully have a very good rest of 22 and it's 22, right? That's, it yeah. is. I know. I, and, I can't believe and it. And then, yeah, God. And yeah, yeah. We'll be on the road and we'll see all your, your, your listeners at some stage and do tell people that if, um, they want to come up and say hello and um, that I'd be, be just excited to meet him. Love, love Manly. Well, there you go, everybody. Thank you so much to Martin for doing the podcast. Be sure to go and check them out. All the links are posted at mandolinsandbeer.com and in the description of this podcast. Again, January 31st, the first ever Mandolins and Beer virtual hang. All you have to do is be a Patreon member, and uh, I believe that's called a patron, and you can do that for $1 a month. Uh, so go on over and sign up. Uh, it all goes to help support this podcast, and we're going to have a real good time. So uh, check it out. Cheers, everybody.